Mickey, what's hey, up, Brian. buddy? I'm starting to feel like this is almost a pattern. I think it is. So it is a lovely August 4th. 2020 here in the great state of california it is 83 degrees fahrenheit it's a little warm welcome everybody to devops fm i am your host mickey gusey and alongside me is the an in- in- ever esteemable brian randall well thank you for that introduction mickey it's good to talk to you too you know i was uh getting out of the shower this morning and I put on some music, and the music is irrelevant because, for whatever reason, I then started thinking about, you know what would be good to listen to is Elvis. And so once I started thinking about Elvis, that made me think about Mickey, because Mickey lives in Tupelo, Mississippi. I do indeed. So Tupelo, we have been lucky enough to where we have missed most of the hurricane that has been going up the East Coast. We have... um gotten some rain and some wind from it, but nothing near as bad because it kind of turned and just kind of has been scraping up the coast. So overall, nothing exciting happening here. The The weather has made it a little bit cooler. So instead of being the scorching 105 degrees, it's only been the scorching 90 degrees. Ooh, but what's the humidity? Humidity is what matters most in the South. It's probably at least 80%, if not more. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, yeah, that storm uh, looks like it was it smacked around uh, the Carolinas, and as we record this, it's heading up to New York where they're having tornado warnings. Welcome to my world. I am so used to tornado warnings that it doesn't that doesn't phase me at all. In fact, we have a great tornado story that we could tell one day on this podcast if we really wanted to. Well, that's funny that we can, but we're not going to do that today. But yes, there there is a tornado story to talk about related to Brian and Mickey and a visit to the great state of North Carolina. So let's give our weekly COVID update. So here in Mississippi, we have finally achieved something that we've never been able to achieve anywhere else, which is we are finally ranked number one in something. So we're like number one in COVID cases or COVID deaths per capita of people, something like that. It's insane. It's just insane. The school systems have started to go back. Different counties have started to go back. Um, Corinth, I think I mentioned last week, was starting back last week. And within, I think, a day and a half, they had multiple COVID cases. So now they've taken kids out of school and the parents of all the kids that were in that kid's class are having to quarantine. So it's just just a big mess. Yeah, it, it it's just completely uh, ridiculous. Um, I have the last update I got about my grandmother uh, who has COVID. Uh, she was doing fine, but I'm waiting for an update today because today is the weekly uh, doctor slash nurse check-in uh used to be normally it was a visit both COVID. i don't know if they're always going in there or what how that's going on but uh we'll find out about her and i don't remember if i talked about this i was trying to look at my notes but uh my brother had one of the people that works with him um he's in the real estate business uh passed away so it keeps getting closer to me and my family as far as you know who has it so my grandmother and who is unfortunately passing away and so i've got now my brother's friend 
uh, coworker, and then I have my uncle's brother. So uh, it's real, and so I'm not looking forward to it. And, of course, they have not made any decisions yet on high school or college sports, at least here in the Southeast yet, so we're kind of waiting to see what happens there. But speaking about sports, something I have found interesting is, have you watched any of the NBA that started back up yet, Brian? No, you know, NBA is a sport that I enjoy by going to a basketball game and, you know, having food and being there. I can't get into it on the TV for some reason. So I've been in and out of the NBA for a while, and I haven't, I'm not really in it right now, but I watched a couple of games over the past week or so. And what I found most interesting is they're playing, you know, they're talking about being in this bubble and having everybody, you know, protected. And, and But if you watch the game, they have a section of the court like one of the walls where the fans would be sitting are digital fans. So unlike Major League Baseball, which is putting cutouts of people in the stands, they have this digital wall, and I'm guessing you can pay, and it's live people, and it looks like they're sitting in the stands, and you can see them clapping and doing other things and holding up babies. And I'm guessing like you you, you probably subscribe or pay or something, and you're able to have a, quote, seat at the at the game. What a total trip. That is something. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I saw the thing about cardboard cutouts, um, and there was even something, it was either Korea or Japan that was trying some of those things with even robots and stuff, I thought. But yeah, it's kind of trippy. So interesting how people are adapting as far as, as COVID goes. Now, Meg's school system, Tupelo system, starts next week with your choice of either in-person or going to class. And I've mentioned she's going to class. But there are some other school systems that are starting in a couple of weeks where they're actually going to start off online. So you have to either go online and, and, do, and do your classes for the first three weeks or you have to go pick up a packet and then bring the packet back on Fridays. And so they're, gonna, they're going to basically get people used to that. And then about three weeks in, if things aren't crazy, they're going to say you can come to school or you can continue to do it online. So they're they're trying to, I guess, make sure they've got the entire system in place for how they want to do things before before things get really bad and you have to go online. Well, anyway, how's how's it going with work for you? What have you been up to since last week? So I have been doing a little bit of everything. So we've got a couple of internal projects for my team, some documentation type stuff I've been working on. But I've also been assisting the GitHub Learning Lab people with updating some of their learning labs. Have you looked at any of the GitHub Learning Labs, Brian? I have. There's some good stuff in there. If you go to lab.github.com, you can see all the different labs that we have out there that are available for people to run through for free. And what's really cool about these labs is they have bots and other things behind them that drive you through the lab process. So they give you source code. They, they give you all kind of stuff. And as you do commits or you do pull requests, the bots behind automatically say, here's your next set of instructions. It's a, it's a really cool way of doing it. And I've been working on a couple of different labs, just trying to, to uh, do some bug fixes and, and finding, trying to just make them a little bit better. And it's been an interesting learning process, plus getting to work with a new team inside of GitHub that I don't normally get to work with. So I've, I've been kind of busy. That's what I've been doing last week and part of this week. What about you? 
Well, um, I had some work that I'm still doing with my customer. And uh, once again, we were driving to Alpha. We got really close and then sadly found a couple more things we had to get in. And we had one area we were doing around security. We had missed one place. And so what's happening, the the data data was showing when it should have. And so that was disconcerting. So nothing critical because it's not even real data yet. But you want to find those things in test. And so we did. Uh, that forced me also to look at pipelines. So remember, I was talking about running Azure pipelines. And I've been slowly going through and upgrading. This is probably a, a big thing to consider um, we can talk about it more as we transition, which is now is a good transition into just the general stuff of the show, which is when you're building a pipeline, I don't care if it's Azure DevOps, GitHub Actions, uh, Circle, CI, uh, Circle CI, Jenkins, whatever. There's this procedure where you go through and you fight with it and you, and you, and you get your build and your release combination working. And once you have it working, you then make sure that it continues to work. And then after a while, sometimes you don't have any major updates to a piece of software you're working on. So things just continue to work. Or if you don't have any code changes, maybe that pipeline just sits there for a while. And maybe your code's in production. And it's just working fine. And maybe it's self-hosted on your own network or it's in, the, in a cloud. Well, I ran into a particular issue where things had been working great. And then the, the customer said, could you make some changes to the app? And I said, sure. So then I was like, okay, let's sync up, make sure I have the latest code in the repo, and I go working at it. And then I run it, and my build fails. <laughs> and then you go back and look at the build, and you go, oh, man, we did some weird stuff here because we were in this transition period. And so what I'm getting at, folks, is you really should have a on your calendar kind of a maintenance window, which is let's make sure our full CI/CD process still works. So we had a combination of using uh, some tasks that there's new versions for. There's better ways to do it. One of the things that's really been making me happy is the there's a newer task for working with Azure App Service. So with Azure App Service, you can deploy a website or web service, for example. And when I use Azure Pipelines, there's a specific task that will do the deployment. And one of the things you can then do is do things like web config transforms and application uh -huh. settings. Well, depending upon when you got started with that, they didn't really have any nice stuff in there. And so then they started adding where you could set individual properties, but you have to put them as individual line items in the latest task. But did you know, Mickey, that they added a new task? Just for settings? I did not. What is this new task called? Well, I'm going to open up my pipeline, and I'm going to go right into it. And what you're going to find is that when you uh, go to your pipeline, and then you go into an individual stage, you can add the Azure App Service Settings task. And here's why Brian loves that. First of all, it has a box just for app settings. And guess what? The syntax is JSON, which means you can take the JSON that's in Azure that you may have manually configured to get things working and paste it in here and then tokenize it. Oh, that's handy. There's also one for general settings, which controls, for example, always on, the bitness, uh, runtimes that you have. And then your friend and mine, connection strings, are also there on their own, and it is JSON as well. Sweet. I have struggled with the 
without having that task, with just working with the deploy task and trying to make sure you get everything configured in there correctly and the box is checked and all that jazz. And so this sounds like something I need to go investigate because it will make configuring all that stuff a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, I was, because uh, once again, I was looking at one pipeline that's fairly new and that and I had done it there. And so I went and looked at an old pipeline. This is the thing, right? A pipeline that, well, let me tell you, the last time we deployed to production was, shoot, all the way back in May? No, March, right? So this has been running since March, just fine, no problems. So we had no reason to run any updates, right? However, when I then went and looked at my release, I was kind of, how shall I say, dissatisfied with the way it was set up. And that's because when I set it up, which was, looks like, another six months before then. So we're looking at, let's call it October of last year. I did not have access to that new task. So instead I had chosen at the time because I didn't like editing the, the properties with those individual things. I was using the Azure CLI to do the web app config operation. So there you go. So you bring up an interesting point, which is, you know, you didn't use your release pipeline for you know weeks months but you mentioned hey that's something that you should have a maintenance window or something that you test but you can't necessarily say hey okay well it's time to test the release to production so let's push out something else to production in case it breaks it so do you instead need to have like a copy of that pipeline that deploy that that does the exact same thing but deploys to a staging instead of production and then maybe run that nightly or do something like that i mean how, how what's your opinion on how you would handle that well, now that I've been really dealing with this one customer, we've got four different projects. Um, definitely, I'm a firm believer in having multiple stages that represent multiple environments. So all of these products slash services that we've built have dev, test, and prod. Uh, now, the downside is there's extra cost associated with it because this is all for this customer is done in Azure. So we have multiple environments that are broken up by resource group, and there's a dev, test, and prod. And so at a minimum, you should be running your dev one probably every night or even weekly just so you can pick up things because you want to find them before they break. Because the other thing is sometimes stuff breaks in Azure. There was a We ran into an issue with Azure Functions last week that came up because they had made a change and people that didn't have any trouble before then, all of a sudden they were deploying and things were breaking. It got fixed. It's all life is good. Uh, but yeah, so as I do this more often, I realize that just because you got it working doesn't mean you can forget about it, right? You have to k- keep oiling. It's kind of like you know your door in your garage. If you don't go out there very often, sometimes it gets corroded full of crap. So were you deploying, though, to your dev and your test, and you just weren't deploying to your prod, and your prod pipeline was just a little bit different, and that's what caused your issues? I'm trying to understand your 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 issues that you encountered. Oh, the issue was we needed to make a change in the configuration. The The pipeline was fine. I just didn't like the pipeline. Right. So I haven't run into any trouble. Okay. It was just, I realized I hadn't run it for a while. And then I was like, oh, why did we do it that way? Because when we built it, 
We, in other words, we built a God working and left it alone, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I don't think that's the way you should look at your pipelines because what happens is those tasks do get deprecated or they'll tell you that you shouldn't use version one of the tasks. You need to be using version three. Like the app service task is now at version four. I've been using it since version zero. And ideally, as you said, you have at least like a dev test and a prod that you're deploying to where the pipelines are pretty much the same, just the changes, the configurations and stuff that you're changing in the particular stages is what changes. So therefore, if you have dev and tests that you're deploying to relatively often and say you get new versions of the of the tasks that you need to use, then you can test those there. And that makes it when you finally have to, te- to change it in production, a much easier type of change. Exactly. And obviously, you know, this is for some people are like, well, God, we're always changing production because we're always doing work on it. But I've built apps that, like I said, we had no reason to change it. Now, we do run into a separate thing, though, is as you continue to audit and manage security and because you're running a cloud environment, things do change. So you might want to find a window where even if you just do the last known good deployment, you do it off hours or even you let people know, hey, you know, when it's a slow period that we should do that, this update. Now, you may not want to touch prod unless you run into something specific in dev or test, but definitely I think it's something you should be doing more often. And it's something that I'm now realizing we need to do because looking back, we had some of these pipelines, they're kind of stale. They haven't been running forever because things are working. So anyway, that was probably the the big thing I ran into uh, this last week dealing with pipelines, which you know, last week we talked about pipelines, so a little more pipelines for fun. There you go. I like it. What else you know good? Well, so as you know, Mickey, I'm not necessarily the smallest man around. I may have some meat on me. So I've been trying to exercise. And uh, so this morning I went for a walk, and this time I went by myself without the family. And so I started catching up on a podcast I listened to, and it was interesting listening to this as someone who primarily lives in the world of Windows, right? I've spent most of my career doing development on Windows. And so, um, as you may know, Apple had their developer conference back in June. And one of the things that they announced is the next release of Mac OS, which is called Big Sur, uh, after a place in California, beautiful location. And the big thing that's happened is they've announced their own silicon, right? So they're going to move off of Intel long-term for Macs, and they're going to have their own Apple silicon-based Macs, which is the way their iPhones and iPads currently work, okay? Okay, I'm with you so far. Now, you, I believe, have an iPhone. I do have an iPhone. And what is your primary input technology for working with your iPhone screen? My fingers. Exactly. So it's a touch interface, right? That would be the technical term, yes. There you go. However, have you ever tried to work with a Mac with your finger on the screen? No, because if I remember correctly, most uh, MacBooks or MacBook Pros or whatever don't have actual touch screens. That is the correct thing. Now, I would like to point out that my Surface Book does have a touchscreen. My Surface Pro 3 has a touchscreen. My original Surface has a touchscreen. I'd like to point out that my Microsoft devices have had touchscreens for a while. Well, it's exactly there that I'm going. So there's been debate in the community over the value of touchscreens for computers. And because Apple... 
this goes all the way back to Steve Jobs when he famously made fun of both using a stylus for anything, a phone, tablet, etc., but even touchscreens. Um, and of course, Apple's evolved. Steve unfortunately passed away, and Apple saw fit to bring the Apple Pencil to their iPads. Well, this was kind of that first uh, acquiescence to the community to say that, well, styluses can serve a purpose, particularly when they're finer tipped than your old meat hook, right, that you use uh, on them. Well, what's happened is they've made a bunch of changes in Big Sur that lead the Mac faithful to believe that it's possible that Apple could release Macs with touchscreens. Now, what is the point of this whole discussion? Two things. Number one, the podcast is called ATPFM, the Accidental Tech Podcast, and I dream of being as regular as they are. They seem to record just about every week, uh, except to very special occurrences. And uh, this is episode 387 that they uh, talk about this, entitled, It Might Not Be As Cool As You Think. But they have a whole discussion where they go into discussing what an iPad Pro is or is it? Is it an ARM Mac? And the, the the reason I bring this up is the guys are really good. They are definitely Mac fans, and they believe they like the way the Apple's ecosystem is run, how Apple's software and technology works. They make the point that the PC world has had convertibles, has had machines like the Surface, has had even they even bring up the the, the Surface that has the really big screen that you can draw on. Uh, what's it called? Is it the Surface Pro? Oh, I know, what it's called. I know what you're talking about with the little knob. Yeah. Oh, this thing right here. Yeah, the little the little dialy thingy. But anyway, uh, we'll put show links in the show notes. But anyway, the point I'm getting at is interesting listening to them because they're all of them are developers, right? This is what they do for a living. They all work on software. One of the guys, Marco Arment, writes Objective-C mostly in PHP. He's got a uh, an app called Overcast, which I subscribe for. It's an excellent podcasting app. Casey Liss was a Windows developer. He used to write in C-sharp and ASP.NET. He has moved over to doing iOS apps. And then John Syracuse uh, is, older, is older than I am, has been around longer, and uh, is one of those old crotchety guys who does a lot. I know he works on backend systems, among other things, but he also has his own two Mac apps. And my dog says hello. <laughs> in either case, the, the point I'm getting at is it's interesting to listen to them have the discussion that we went through in the Windows community, and I'm sad because... If, if Apple pulls this off, I, I think that's wonderful. I think it'd be great to have the ability to use the touchscreen on a Mac occasionally, just like I use it on my Surface devices, just like you do. What I found interesting, though, is them going through the same thing that we try, Microsoft tried this with UWP and failed, and it makes me sad. Um, and that brings me back then to what does that mean about DevOps? Well, DevOps, right, is always focused on how do we deliver value. And it's interesting to see the Mac community or the Apple community look to Apple and wonder, are you going to deliver value? In other words, have you realized that maybe the value we want is to occasionally touch our Mac screen? Even though Steve said it was stupid, even though you, you for years have tried to keep this artificial separation between iOS devices and the iPad in particular and MacBooks on the other side and say, well, once for one thing, once for another, whereas the Windows community has seen fit to 
provide all sorts of advice, sometimes not well. Some, some of the devices suck, let's be clear. But others have shown some great execution. And I think it's that driving focus on whatever you do in DevOps is to focus on how is it delivering value for my end users. And so that's what just kind of all went through my head today as I was thinking about that we were going to talk tonight and how their conversation resonated with me because it's a conversation I had with Windows developers for years. And unfortunately, UWT didn't work out the way Microsoft wanted it. But I love Microsoft's willingness to experiment, learn, and not succeed. What do you think about that? No, I agree with, with everything that you, that, you, that you said there, especially with the tying it back to, to DevOps and delivering that value to your end users. But as you were discussing this whole touchscreen thing, it got me thinking, though, when's the last time I actually touched my touchscreen on my Surface laptop? Because when I am at home, like I am now, if I'm working in my office, then the laptop's in a hub. And I'm using my multiple monitors and my keyboard and mouse. So I, I don't ever touch it. So that got me thinking, okay, so for my, my Surface Book, I have a Surface Book 2. When I used to travel a lot, how much did I actually touch the touchscreen? And I would probably have to say, if I just had to give it a percentage, honestly, probably less than 5%. Because most times it's on the, the it's, you know, it's connected, the the, with the Surface Book, you can disconnect the, the the monitor portion, so you could use it as a tablet. Whenever I disconnected it, yes, I would use it as a touchscreen, but that was mostly if I was just going to be watching something. But using it as a laptop, I rarely would touch the screen. I still just used an external mouse or a trackpad. So it did make me wonder, from that perspective, how useful is the touchscreen? I like having it. I like having the option, I guess, is what really appeals to me. I definitely think workflow is a big part of it. So going back to into how I work, because I have both Macs, an iPad Pro, as well as Windows machines that have touchscreens. And so my primary Windows device that I use regularly that has a touchscreen is actually a Lenovo um, X1 something. It's a Yoga. So it's the convertible. It flips all the way over so I can use it as a fat tablet and I can draw on it with the stylus, but it obviously has a touchscreen. Without traveling, I've actually had to remind myself to power it up and keep it in sync and up to date. Why? Because the main reason I have that was for traveling. It was my device that I would pull out of my bag because the three machines I carry with me when I'm on the road for work are the Yoga, which has all my email on it. OneNote has a, has Visual Studio, of course, just in case, because it's kind of, it's a low power machine. But I would pull it out on my flights. That's the machine I would use on flights. Then I have my MacBook Pro for a variety of Mac-related things, but I don't keep my email and my personal stuff on there. It's mostly for doing Xamarin uh, and Mac-related things. And then I have my P72, which is a huge 17-inch laptop, which doesn't come out on planes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny though, is I use the touchscreen quite a bit when I'm doing work on the plane because I find myself thinking and when I'm not engaged in active typing, like typing an email message, I will then touch the screen as kind of a gesture to navigate, right? But I won't do it um, like at home, like right now it's, it's closed up. I'm using a keyboard. I have three monitors, a mouse. And so I don't do it. The flip side is for entertainment, I use my iPad a lot and I draw a lot of my iPad. 
Um, and that's because the iPad's form factor. So you bring up your Surface, right? You have, don't correct me if I'm wrong, the 15-inch, right? Yes, I do, which is a pain on planes. I would rather have the Surface Book 13-inch because it'd be a little bit easier to use on planes. Okay, but what I want to ask, though, is do you find it useful to pull off and draw on it or use OneNote, for example? I have never pulled off pulled it apart and used it to draw on or use one note in that perspective. The only times I've ever pulled it off, honestly, is if I was going to play a game or use it to like sit on the couch or something and watch a show. And even then the battery life isn't great when it's disconnected from the keyboard. That's interesting. So I think there's two things there. There's an issue with your exact device and then there's what you choose to use it with. So uh, a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Ben Day, uh, he had a Surface Book for quite a while, and I, he and I would do work and talk geek and Scrum and other stuff, and he would pull it off on a regular basis and use it with OneNote, and he would use it for drawing and doing note-taking. Um, so once again, I think the key there is that it's hard to always see what your users are going to do with technology, um, and so you've got to listen to their input, and basically the Mac community has led Apple to believe that they might want to see this. And so it's going to be interesting if they actually deliver it because Apple has not officially announced whether it'll be touchscreen Macs or not. So there you go. And as you pointed out about my iPhone, just to pivot for a second, yes, I am heavily invested in the, the Apple ecosystem, but I have to admit there is a challenger on the horizon that may pull me over into Android. Are you looking at the proverbial dual screen little Surface Duo? The, the yeah the Microsoft Surface Duo I have it it's looking kind of nice because I had found a Kickstarter that I or something that I was going to join that was a case for my iPhone that gave it a second screen and I was like okay that looks interesting you know maybe I should drop some money on that and give it a shot it was like three hundred four hundred dollars though and then when talking to some of my coworkers they were like well why don't you just wait and check out the Duo because they're Rumor has it that it could potentially be out this year. Well, that's going to be interesting um, what happens there. I'm not going anywhere when it comes to the phone because for years, for years, I used every phone handheld device that Microsoft would come out with. And when the iPhone first came out, I waited and my business partner got one and a good, uh, actually both were business partners at the time, uh, John Flanders and Ken Getz. And they got the first one, and they're like, oh, this is really great. And I go, uh. And then finally, when they came out with the 3G, I got it, and it was that Jesus phone moment for me. And I got my wife one. We figured out how to share calendars. And now my whole family, all five of us have iPhones. So it it ain't going to happen. I'm not switching to Android oh, for oh, my well, primary. I mean, I love my iPhone, and I love both, both my girls have iPhones, and it makes things a lot easier. But I will at least have to go find one and put hands on it to try to make a decision on whether I want one or not. Oh, and there's nothing, I mean, you can have it. I mean, I have an Android phone. I need it for customers that want to do Android development and I wanted to see what I was missing. Currently, my best Android phone is a Pixel 2, so I'm a little behind. Uh, the problem is I just, I haven't found anything I want to actually get and then I don't have any current customers. So it's like, for now, it's my, my best device. But I would like to look at the Duo. I'm interested for sure. Well, we'll... Dear listeners, keep you updated on that as we get further into the year and maybe have a chance to actually, you know, play with it a little bit. So, you know, we talked about agents and agile. So the other thing I've been doing, uh, started up 
uh, kind of the a new month meant time to revisit, and I've fallen a little bit behind because I've been so busy. I've been working some extra hours getting this stuff done for the customer that we um, that I haven't been spending a lot of time sitting up to date on what's going on with GitHub from a tactical perspective because all the work's in Azure DevOps. And so, you know, last week we talked about the roadmap that uh, came out. And then I saw there was a blog post yesterday from Chris Patterson. So Chris uh, is one of the GitHub employees who moved over from Microsoft. And Chris focuses on GitHub Actions. And we'll put the link in the show notes. But basically, it's GitHub Actions improvements for fork and pull request workflows. And uh, what resonates with me, number one, is how he starts. Many customers choose to work in a forking model instead of a branching model with their private repositories. And he basically goes on to say, this feature's for you. We are giving you this enhancement because you have asked for it. And I think it's that customer-driven delivery of value that is just excellent. So it's uh, I haven't played with this at all. And I have to admit, I have not used forks extensively prior to using and working with GitHub. But once I started working with GitHub, it was like, oh, I want to have a copy of this to play with. I'll fork it. Uh, I wrote some labs, and uh, one of the things we did for these labs that I did for a customer was I set up a base repo and said, okay, if you want to do the demo, just fork this repo and then start the demo. And it eliminated a bunch of extra setup that people had to do. And they have the ability to say, hey, I've made some changes. I'd like to give them to you um, without having to be a member of the primary repo. So lots of good stuff there. Um, I like to see that they're, they keep working to make uh, GitHub Actions even better. So that was kind of my rant around value today. I approve. Yeah, I have not read this blog post yet. I, knew, I saw that it got it was pushed out yesterday, and I haven't had a chance to play with it either. But they're consistently adding cool new stuff to GitHub Actions. So it's definitely something you want to to stay on top of and be aware of. And then that, because if you go to the bottom of a GitHub blog post, what they'll do is they'll often have related posts. And I missed this, and I don't remember if you mentioned it last week, and I apologize if you did, but there was a blog post by Alex Mullins. And Alex is uh, an old friend. He used to work on Azure Artifacts. I have hung out with him. He's a really nice guy. And he has a blog post on Dependabot now updates your action workflows. And so this is really cool. Did you know about this? I believe we had it in our list of things to potentially talk about future show notes. But I don't think we actually talked about it. Okay, well, if you don't know what Dependabot does, it goes through your code and looks for issues in your dependency tree, which could be like security-related fixes um, or other problems related to things that your app needs. And so uh, this uh, enhancement basically says, now Dependabot can keep the actions using your workflow files updated automatically, which is really great because one of the great things about the way GitHub Actions work is that you basically pull them from someone else's repo, right? You can pull them from the the master GitHub list or you can pull them from your own. So I thought that was really cool as well. So something I got to spend more time with this month is I make sure my GitHub muscles don't go under atrophy. Um, Yeah, I struggle to to stay up to date because as you probably can guess, as a staff member, I also get access to early releases of some of this stuff before it's released to everybody. So I have to kind of walk that narrow line of making sure that I I don't talk about something that's not out there yet, but that's coming 
And then I have to make sure if I'm looking at something and something new pops up in my interface that it's, is it, is it just shipped internally or is it available to everybody? So yeah, it's definitely, I, I, I feel you in trying to catch up and trying to keep up with things. All right. Well, Mickey, what can't you let go of this week? So I can't let go of last night. I introduced my daughter to yet another 80s movie I mentioned to her for her to watch, which is Some Kind of Wonderful. Oh, I love Some Kind of Wonderful. And fun fact, before she watched this movie, she had watched Back to the Future. And for those of you that don't know, one of the main characters in Some Kind of Wonderful and Back to the Future is Leah Thompson. Thompson, yep. Who is 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 in both movies. But some people may also not be aware that um, Eric, what's his name, the, the, the lead actor in Some Kind of Wonderful, was actually the original Marty McFly in Back to the Future. And then he was replaced by... Uh, by... Come on, help me out here. Who who's the who's the who's Michael Marty Keaton? No, not Michael Keaton. Michael J. Fox. <laughs> he was replaced by Michael Sorry, J. Alex Fox. Sorry, Alex Keaton. Alex Keaton. Michael J. Fox. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. Um, Meg was Sorry, watching you're it. talking about Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. Yeah, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz was the original Marty McFly in Back to the Future, and then he was replaced by Michael J. Fox. So, we're we're working our way through some through some '80s movies. Well, that's funny you bring that up. So first of all, when I think of Some Kind of Wonderful, the song that comes through my head is Miss Amanda Jones, and I won't sing anymore, but there's a whole thing there. Very sweet movie. Uh, so you got Eric Stoltz, Leah Thompson, and Mary Stuart Masterson, uh, which leads me to an 80s movie that I'm introducing the families to. Um, and actually, this technically might not be an 80s movie, but it is, has an 80s hero in it, and it is Pump Up the Volume. Now, I believe it's an 80s movie. Well... Let me take a look. The problem is I'm I'm old and the the font is too small. Well, I have a supercomputer in front of me called the Can Internet. Can you look that up while I, while I jibber jabber for a second? So some kind of wonderful came out in 1987. Oh, um, 1990. So technically, so right it's a 90s the, movie. Yes. Um, uh, well, actually, no. Well, it's it depends on whether it depends on whether you believe a decade starts with the the beginning number or starts on a one so that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother time yeah we won't go there right now but i love pump up the volume it is a great christian slater movie so here's the thing i had to buy a dvd a physical copy uh because it's not available on any streaming service really good luck finding it if you find it i'll be embarrassed because it would have happened in the last month i'm gonna look real quick Okay, you look. In either case, uh, we continue to make our way. We um, uh, did James Bond. We also tormented the children and introduced them over the last three weeks to the Austin Powers trilogy. So we finished a gold member on Friday, and then um, we did um, – shoot, not Goldeneye. We, um, uh, the World is Not Enough last week. So we have one more. With Pierce Bronson, and then uh, we're going to have to find another set. And we've got on the horizon, we've discussed doing the Harry Potter movies, because I have not seen those at all, uh, doing the Mission Impossible series, as well as the Jason Bourne series. So uh, if you guys have any feedback, let me know. I recommend the Jason Bourne series. And Brian, I mean, when I search, I find all kinds of sites like putlocker9.ru. <laughs> 
and www.go123movies.io. And I... How about the, Amazon, you, Netflix, dot net, and yeah. www.filmtube.me? I mean, okay, all enough, of this enough, seems, seems legit. Enough. enough. All right. The point is, it's not available on any of the commercial services in the U.S. So there you go. All right. Well, Mickey, where can folks find you? Well, folks can find me. They can send me emails if they want to at Gusey at github.com. They can find me on my website, mickeygousset.com. They can hit me up on Twitter at Mickey underscore Gousset, or even on YouTube, where I haven't updated in months, but hopefully will if I can find some freaking time, at youtube.com slash mickeygousset. What about you, Brian? Blog.brianrandall.com, at Brian Randall on Twitter, which is the best place to get me, or Brian R at mcwtech.com, and my YouTube channel doesn't have anything on it yet at all, so don't go there. Finally, uh, if you want to get us and give us feedback, email the show at devops.fm, at devops.fm on Twitter, or visit devops.fm on the web. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be good humans. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Brian has a doggy in the background. Could you hear him? Yeah, you heard him. It's okay. It yeah, happened. He was... It was a little loud today. Um, just for the show, UPS came, so that and they knocked on the door, and boy, that sent him through the roof. You know, little pea brain. Bing! How's your puppy? <laughs> your puppy keeps getting uh, he's bigger. He's fine. He's 40-something pounds now, and just what's annoying about him is that when I put him in his cage at like 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night, he can sleep till 5 and doesn't need to go out. It's perfectly fine. But by golly, during the day, if I don't let him out every two hours, then he just decides that he can go wherever he wants to go. And that's frustrating. Oh, that is annoying. You got to do a better job on that potty training. Well, what I'm hoping is when he gets snipped in a couple of weeks that he both calms down and that kind of helps nip that in the bud, so to speak. That's right, folks. Don't forget to spay or neuter your dog or cat unless you have an explicit plan to have them make babies. Because we have plenty of dogs and cats out there that need love at shelters and other type of those facilities. So don't let them procreate unless that's what your plan is. And you're going to take care of all those little puppies and kitties. And I also have two new books to read. So I did just finish reading White Fragility, which is a book I'm reading for my Diversity and Inclusivity Book Club. And it was it was okay. We're having some discussions about it and, and it's got some good and some bad reviews. And, and so I'm still kind of make up my mind about that, but I did order two new books to read. I ordered the start with why by Simon Sinek and then the find your why, which is the kind of the sequel and a practical guide to helping you um, f find your why and start with why is basically how great leaders inspire everyone to take action. And it's supposed to be, I was in a, a, conference for a couple of days last week and it's supposed to be all about you know finding your reason for why you want to do what you do and so i was interested enough that i ordered both the books so i'm gonna start reading those this week and we'll see what comes of it oh man you want to talk about books i'm behind um but i had gone to amazon today because i had to get something and that of course led to that you know amazon's kind of like youtube you know oh let's what's this over here i'll click and read about that 
So I'm a fan of a lot of the O'Reilly books, which usually have animals on them. And I saw a new one I hadn't seen before called Semantic Software Design. Now, it's a fairly new book, only has two reviews. One review is in French, and the English review says, and this is not flattering, folks, um, mostly corporate word salad. And then it says, if you see your non-technical boss reading this, quit immediately. Now, the... Wow. Yeah, that really made me do this. The French one is, bon livre pour les personnes expériments. Um, and I probably even butchered that. Um, but it came out earlier this year because the first review is for January 10th. In either case, uh, the book is by Eben Hewitt. It is from O'Reilly. So now I'm intrigued. The good news is uh, a couple years ago, I finally succumbed and purchased a Safari online subscription. And a lot of companies have this, by the way. I know Microsoft has it for employees. So if you... Yes, they do. If you work at a big company, you might want to check to see if you already have access. And so, granted, the books are digital, which if I'm really going to read a book, I like to have a physical copy. But for perusing or just kind of learning one chapter, I have to have safe space because Mickey's seen my house and knows my wife has had enough of my uh, uh, acquisitions. Uh, I have enough books. So in either case, the point I make about the book is that I'm going to take a look at it online and see if the French review, which gave it... Um, five stars is true, or if it's Mike who gave it one star, uh, we'll see. So I'll, I'll take a look at it. I'll probably read one of the first chapters and then pick a random chapter if, if I don't throw up about the first chapter, and we'll see. So you bring up something that I think we're going to discuss sometime next week or on a future show, which is the whole digital books versus physical books and when we like to have one versus the other because I, I have a, I have a, we could do a whole show on that. So that's something we'll talk about at another time. Okay, that's my homework. I'm going to take a look at this, and we'll talk about books on next week's show. But for now, I think the after show uh, is done, and I've got a meeting in five minutes, so I'm going to have to boogie. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.